0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Toxic, the mess at Smurfit Stone. My name is Kyle Pucco, your narrator for this podcast. Today, we talk with David Schmetterling and John Diarmid. David is the Fisheries Research Coordinator for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And John, who we've met before, is the Science Director for the Clark Fork Coalition. In today's episode, we take a look at the Fish Consumption Advisory that was issued in December of 2020, and we talk about how that came to be what information is in that advisory, and what we as a community can do about it. Enjoy the episode. Here we are, David and John, welcome to Pintler Group HQ for episode four of Toxic, The Mess at Smurfit Stone. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah. 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 Likewise. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us, and, and thanks to David from FWP for joining us today.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So, David, um, in the intro, we you know went through sort of your, your job title and uh, who you are, but if you could for our listeners just introduce Fish and Wildlife. What what, what brings you what, what brings you to uh, to the shop today?
1: Yeah, so I, I'm the research coordinator for um, the fisheries division of Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks is the state fish and game agency. We're the stewards of Montana's fish and wildlife resources for the residents of Montana and for future generations. So it's our role to ensure that um, fish are, are healthy. We have um, vibrant uh, fisheries um, you know, that people can use. And, uh, and you know our native species are conserved um, we care for the you know the we steward the resources of, of Montana and um, as my role um, as, as research coordinator I work on a variety of projects around the state some of those are super fun sites um, and depending on the project of I've, I've, uh, I've worked on st- study plans or the development of research projects to understand the effects that those Superfund sites might have on fisheries or aquatic um, organisms. And uh, in the case of uh, Smurfit Stone Container, um, got involved with it in around 2012, I would say, um, because we had concern about um, decisions that were being made at the time about the health um, of the river. And specifically, we were concerned at the time that there were data being used that wasn't appropriate. Um, So what what was happening around that time is people were using data that we had on on fish in the river um, that was developed for consumption advisories or just some routine screening. But it didn't really reflect the operation of the mill and the contaminants that would be present. Um, you know, from effluent from a pulp and paper you know mill or that industry in general. Also, the data that were being used were pretty old at the time um, and didn't reflect the current composition of fish in the river and what anglers targeted. Specifically, when you know data that we had from the 80s and 90s that people were referencing didn't include northern pike because they weren't um, a component of that river. The thing with northern pike, they were illegally introduced into western Montana. Um, they're a very popular sport fish. You know, They get really big, they eat a lot of fish, they've got a lot of teeth, uh, they fight hard, um, they get really big, like I said, and they're also a great um, fish for eating. So as a result, you know, pe- they get moved around because anglers want that opportunity. They're not native anywhere in western Montana, not in the whole Columbia River drainage. Um, we found that they were illegally introduced into the clear water chain of lakes upstream um, of Missoula and then over a series of events they became established in the river. So it wasn't until the 19, late 1990s that they really became um, a popular sport fish in the river or even a component of that fishery. So the data from the 80s and 90s about fish consumption and contaminants in the river didn't include northern pike. Also the screening work that had been done didn't take into account um, the contaminants that we would expect to see from a pulp mill. The Clark Fork River, you know, downstream of Missoula, upstream of Missoula, um, is a heavily contaminated river, or and it has been for decades. I mean, and most of that has become, is a result of, um, you know, over a century of hard rock mining in the upper part of the watershed. So the, you know, the Clark Fork 5 as we call them, it's not a, you know it's not a boy band but it's the <laughs> copper cadmium um, zinc, lead and mercury. those are the ones those are the typical contaminants we think of with the Clark fork. Some of those like copper really affect fish health but don't do much for human health. but that, those are the big concerns that people have had. But the pulping and paper industry um, has a whole different suite of contaminants that people have known about for decades. Um, You know, it really became um, obvious in this country in the 80s and the 90s, uh, that not just from the bleaching process, but just from the operations of of pulp mills in this country and also in Europe, um, that we're seeing a lot of effects on Fish health, the environment, and and as it relates to human health.
0: Yeah. And, and we're here, obviously, today to talk about this fish advisory uh, yeah. that 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 was issued. Um, and we talked a little bit in episodes uh, one through three about you know fish consumption in this stretch of the Clark Fork River. The reason we're here today is because there's been an update late last year, um, kind of during, as, as Karen from the Clark Fork Coalition put it, during kind of the holiday cheer, which may have been missed, there was this announcement about an update to this advisory. And John, I don't know if maybe you want to uh, update folks on what that advisory was all about and sort of what, what that said and how it was different than before
2: yeah and, and I'm happy to dive into that and let David chime in here to correct me with any of the specific details that I might miss because it's coming from his agency and, and he and his colleague Trevor Selch are really the leaders behind that but um, yeah there was a partial fish 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 excuse me consumption advisory for the Clark Fork River based on some of the data that David talked about earlier that was collected uh, back in 2013 um, this. Concern about fish consumption from the Clark Fork has been around for a long time. And we know that sites like Smurfit Stone have the potential to release toxic substances, particularly dioxin and a related series of compounds known as furans, um, into our rivers. Um, The bleaching process in particular, when a company like Smurfit would take uh, the wood fiber and bleach it to make white paper, chemically, that can release these chemicals, dioxins and furans, create them, and, and, and they can work their way into the environment. And in the case of Smurfit, we feared that they could have made their way into the Clark Fork, as they often do from facilities like this. Um, and people were clamoring for a long time for an investigation of that. You know, if we, if we know these things existed at the mill site, if we know there are pathways from the mill into the river, well, it sort of stands to reason that these chemicals might have made their way into the fishery. And for those of us who, who like to catch and keep some fish once in a while into us. So let's look into that. But there was a lot of resistance from the EPA and from the responsible parties, the, the corporate entities that once owned or operated the site and that signed something known as an administrative order on consent. We call it the AOC for short because that's kind of a mouthful, but it's basically this agreement that says, hey, yeah, we get it. There's a problem out there. There's a potential for a problem. We agree to come to the table, sign this legally binding document, acknowledge the potential problems and to pay for an investigation. And many of us tracking the project thought, okay, well, that should naturally include an investigation of the fishery because that's a, you know, that's a potential pathway into into human beings. But it didn't happen. And so it really, to their credit, it took David and Trevor here going out there and beating the drum and putting together their own budget, budget, cobbling it together to conduct a preliminary screening back in 2013, basically over the opposition of the responsible parties and the EPA, I'm afraid, to get this initial data. And they did it knowing even at the time, like, this isn't going to be the definitive investigation. It's just a quick and dirty look. Is this something we need to look at further? And again, David can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think as I understand it, they were a little shocked by the results. They weren't really expecting to find much. But they did find some dioxins and furans in fish enough to to implement a partial fish consumption advisory for a limited part of the Clark Fork, um, not telling people not to eat any of the fish, but limiting it to a certain number of meals and so forth. So we all thought, well, great. Now we've got an answer. There's a problem. So surely now, in 2014, we'll see a follow-up study because that's like, how could you not do that? But 2014 goes by, 2015, 2016, 2017... Nothing happens. It's not until 2018 that enough clamoring from the public, from groups like ours, from the community advisory group out there, from FWP, from the state, from the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, all of which are involved in tracking this project, kind of complained loud and long enough that finally they said, oh, the EPA and the PRP said, okay, we'll go back in 2018 and we'll conduct a study. And then there were some problems even with that, and it took a, a subsequent effort in 2019 to kind of get us to a place where we thought, okay, the state with David's help and the PRPs and the EPA have collected enough data to take a reasonable next look at this problem. Got the data back in about mid-2020. Finally, from the lab, it takes a while to do the analysis. And again, the results were much worse, really, I think, than anybody thought we would find. And at that point, then, FWP, in consultation with a couple other state agencies, the Department of of Environmental Quality and the Department of Public Health and Human Services, who form a three-agency fish consumption advisory team, reviewed the data and decided, based on thresholds for consumption of fish contaminated with dioxins and furans, that the prudent thing to do was to issue a total ban on all fish and all species for about 148 miles between the confluence, um, the, the Clark Fork's confluence with the Bitterroots at the upper end, and the Flathead River downstream. Um, they have data specifically for rainbow trout and for northern pike. For the others, though, there is no data. And I think in a commendable in a commendable exercise in erring on the side of judgment, they decided to. Kind of view the other fish as dirty until proven clean and say, look, if you can't eat the pike and you can't eat the rainbows, well, you better not eat the cutthroat or the brown trout or the white fish or anything else. Because every time we look, we get information that was worse than the last time we looked. Let's just say, okay, don't eat anything for now. And again, expecting there to be a follow-up study. But of course, now we've got 2013 data, pretty bad, 2018, 19 diet data, even worse, Now, of course, we'll have the big study that says, okay, let's really get to the bottom of this, but it's probably not going to be a surprise when I say it out loud. (laughs) That's not where we are. That's not what's happening. There are no further plans from the PRPs or the EPA to do any further investigation of where these contaminants came historically, where they might be coming from at the moment, is Smurfit an ongoing source of these, these toxic materials into the environment, and how far downstream does the contamination extend? What FWP found was that the highest concentrations of dioxins and furans in fish were in the vicinity of this former Smurfit site, site, and particularly downstream at its, its most downstream monitoring site at St. Regis. That's as far as the study went. So does it continue further downstream than that? We don't know, but we think that's really a critical piece of information, at least to kind of define the downstream end of the problem. Does it extend down below the confluence of the Flathead? Are there issues in the lakes that are downstream on the Clark Fork? Right now, we just don't know, and there's, there are no plans to kind of answer that question for us.
0: Yeah, that is truly scary stuff when you think about the concentration being higher in that stretch of river, right around the, the Smurfit Stone site. Well,
1: yeah actually the concentrations are increase as you go downstream from the stone container site which makes sense given that you know these um the, you know the releases occurred over decades from the mill and water goes downstream and uh, mm-hmm. and you know even though these contaminants that we're talking about dioxins fur- furans coplanar PCBs they don't really get... They're hydrophobic. They don't really get bound up in the water itself, but they do get carried along with um, organisms, detritus, fish. Mm-hmm. So you know, d- the downstream, as you know, as you look downstream, especially owing to the fact that the bill hasn't been operated in over a decade now, and we expect to see um, those contaminants downstream, and we did.
0: Yeah, you might hear people say, and maybe you do. Maybe this is just me wondering this out loud, but. Um oh, well, the mill's been closed for so long, that's tragic that this happened many years ago, that they were dumping toxic chemicals into the river, but it's closed now, so we don't have anything to worry about. What what, what say you to that, David?
1: Yeah, no, that, that that's a good question. I mean, the mill has been closed for a decade. They haven't, and even prior to that, they stopped the bleaching process, and they stopped some of the most harmful chemicals or effluent that was being discharged from the site a long time ago. But these chemicals, these compounds are really persistent in the environment. They stay around for hundreds, thousands of years. And even at very low concentrations, these are very toxic compounds to people. Um, so it's not, yeah, yes, things are cleaner now than they were probably uh, from dilution, from sediment transport, from the transport of material downstream. But you can't really get rid of these. They stay in the environment. They just kind of move through the um, trophic levels, you know, just through the food chain, but they don't go anywhere.
0: And we went out there uh, last last spring, and it certainly doesn't seem like the mess is cleaned up by any means. There's these pools, and they had sort of this weird smell. And without taking samples of this water, you could just tell something was off here. Um, and, and so, when you are testing the fish. How does that look, and can you help our listeners understand the concept of bioaccumulation and and how that yeah. how that might impact the fish that they eat or uh, yeah this this advisory yeah. itself?
1: yeah, so yeah, if you were to go out to the site right now, you wouldn't see a clean, beautiful riparian area, and you know I think that's the potential for that site. it's a historically a cottonwood gallery, it's floodplain, but what you'd see out there are these. Berms or small dams; these big areas that are seasonally inundated from rainwater or groundwater. You know, so as the river rises, the ponds you know fill up with water. You'll see big landfill or dumps, um, and you'll see them covered with noxious weeds. It's far from what you would think of as a clean site. It still has a smell out there. Um, I'm not totally sure what the smell is. I've heard it's, I mean, I, I know what it is. <laughs> My first job with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in nine, 1995, I was a cre- creel clerk and part of the, for the Clark Fork. And uh, I would fly over the river um, several times a week. And when i come by the mill, I mean, it, the smell was so strong, it was, uh, like it would get me phys- physically nauseous. Um, all pulp mills share that smell, or paper mills share that smell. And that's one of the reasons um, why they're not a great uh, neighbor. And, um, you know, in Missoula in the 90s, Missoula smelled like that. Um, And I'll get get back to that when we talk about, if we talk about aerial deposition, but I'm getting a little far afield now. Um, But, yeah, if you were to look at the site, it doesn't look like a, a clean, beautiful riparian area. Uh, in terms of fish and how, it, how these toxins accumulate in fish, um, it varies by the fish age and what they eat. So younger fish just don't have the amount of time to accumulate toxins from their food. Okay? Um, and then fish like northern pike, they eat other fish. So what they're doing is eating like the whole food history of the fish that they eat. And we call that bioaccumulation. So if you start off with the water, which I said these compounds are hydrophobic. So if you just do water samples, you're probably not going to detect these. You might detect heavy metals or things like that, but you're not going to detect dioxins, furans, and PCBs. Um, If you go to another level of, uh, of, of sampling and you sample the Benthic invertebrates—the the insects that live on the bottom of the streams—they will accumulate stuff that's in the water and stuff that's um, you know, break down or other organic matter and eat that, and they'll accumulate what was in there. So they're a little better. And then you go up another stage, and you might have fish that just eat insects. Um, and then if you know, then if you study what's in the tissue of fish that eat fish, that eat insects, that eat detritus, that, you know, that live in the water, you get a much fuller picture of what's going on. And that's what Northern Pike provide more so than other fish. And that's why in 2012, early 2013, we were really concerned about the data and the interpretation of data that was being used because Northern Pike weren't part of that fish community in the 80s and early 90s when sampling had been conducted. Also, the the compounds like dioxins, furans, coplanar PCBs were never sampled for here, and those are the ones that we associate with pulping and paper mills across the country. So, and you know, like John said in 2013, Trevor Selch, the pollution biologist, and and I, you know, we were really concerned that there were going to be decisions that were made about this site, the contamination, and the river, and you know, that could lead to. Um, Kind of inappropriate levels of cleanup that wasn't based on on data that was reflective of how the mill was being operated and wasn't reflective of the fish community. We contacted EPA, DEQ, and others about these concerns, but it didn't seem like there was going to be any sampling. And we calculated how much money we each had in our budgets, and this is kind of toward the end of the fiscal year. We didn't have very much, but based on zeroing out our budgets, we collected enough samples to do what we called a preliminary investigation, thinking it was just, you know, let's get some data and see what it leads to. We didn't know if we were going to find anything, especially because of um, how hard it is to detect these compounds. They occur in such small levels, but those small levels can be really toxic and really important. We did a very conservative study. We just, you know, sampled one area that was relatively close to the mill. It was um, just a few miles downstream of the mill, primarily. Um, like I said, further downstream, we would actually expect to see maybe more. But there's other sources of you know, and, and confounding variables the further you get from the mill. So we just wanted to sample one place that was close to the mill, thinking that might be, a, you know, that that would reflect. You know, the mill is the source. And we uh, just collected northern pike and rainbow trout. And the way we processed them was just using fillets, as anglers do. That's very conservative, because for other fish consumption indices and other ecological indices, you either use the whole fish, you know, like a bald eagle or an osprey might eat. Um, or a fish with skin on that um, an angler may you know, prepare it that way. But we just went with just the tissue, just the filet. Um, and we actually restricted the size of the rainbow trout in that first study to what was um, to the sizes that were in the regulations at that year. So they had to be less than, I believe, 15 inches um, or 14 inches. So that's also a relatively young fish and rainbow trout in general are relatively young. less you say they're you know less than six years old. Typically, you know, most less than five years old. So we we didn't really know if we were gonna what we were gonna find, and we thought it was gonna be conservative, but just have some data, and that's all we could afford. And um, and like John said, we were really surprised that we detected these compounds in almost every single sample we had, and it led to a consumption advisory um, on those fish to limit the number of meals per month, knowing that the fish move around. Um it's not like we could just put a point on a map, even though our, our sample section was only a you know mile or so long, a couple of miles, you know, downstream of the mill. Um, we couldn't just put that point on the map. We had to think about you know where these fish came from, where they would be over the course of their lives, and ultimately we settled on a large section of river from the mouth of the Bitterroot to the mouth of the Flathead. It's a huge area. And uh you know, and, and later sampling in 2018 reinforced that. And it's, 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 it really saddens me, you know, as, um you know, as a biologist for the state, our mission is to provide stewardship of these resources for people to use for now and into the future. And this is now a resource that really can't be fully used by people because we were telling people they can't,
0: Yeah, one of the advice—the language of the advisory—high levels of contaminants in the fish tissue just sounds, you know, so alarming.
2: It doesn't. It's not the kind of thing you think of as a Montanan, right? You know, like we live in this place. We pride ourselves in our, you know, our clean, pristine streams, our beautiful snow-capped mountains. You think this is the place you come to hunt and fish, and you find out the Clark Fork River—we can't eat the fish. They're not safe for human consumption. It is sort of a a jaw dropper for a lot of people. to hear that and, and to realize that that's the reality we now face. And so that's why I think it's just so critically important that we get to the bottom of where did this stuff come from? Um, is it still entering the stream? You know, we're never going to turn this around if we can't turn off the spigot where it might be coming from and, and where, if anywhere, can we, you know, engage in some active cleanup and restoration to try to eliminate those sites. And there are multiple potential sites of some of these contaminants in the watershed, but Smurfit is clearly one of them and almost certainly the largest in terms of the potential to have generated and to continue to generate those, those contaminants. And so that's why we think it's just so absolutely critical to do a thorough and comprehensive, timely investigation of the role Smurfit plays in contributing these toxic materials to the environment, to the fishery, and ultimately to us, if not for the uh, consumption advisory that we have David and Trevor to thank for.
0: You mentioned John. Your people's jaws are on the ground, and I, you know, I've, I certainly feel that. Um, and you also mentioned, okay, now that this study has come out, this advisory is issued. Now, of course, now things will happen, and now the EPA will sort of jump to jump to their feet. But can you help our listeners understand that the Venn diagram that exists between FWP, Clarkport Coalition, and the EPA, and you know? perhaps why there isn't a third person here today talking or a fourth person here today talking from the EPA. And uh, can you help us, il- can you help take that visualization? Like, where's their crossover? Where's their friction? What, what's going on here? Why isn't that happening?
2: Um, yeah, sure. I can try to walk through that. It is a little bit of a uh, complicated okay. Venn yeah. diagram. Maybe you can use. answer it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> together. But, um, So... The EPA is the lead agency in this investigation. And as I mentioned, there are a number of companies that through Superfund law are on the hook out there as potential potentially responsible parties, or the PRPs we call them. And they signed an agreement called an administrative order on consent that says, okay, you know, we're faced with Superfund listing of this site. That won't be necessary. We get it, there's a problem. We are going to work with EPA to investigate it and, if necessary, as necessary, to clean it. So, EPA is the lead agency running that investigation. And it's in a a stage right now called the remedial investigation, which is kind of this background investigation. What's the story out there? What's going on? It informs some risk assessment models, both for human health and the environment, that kind of help inform the process as to what all the data that are collected actually mean in terms of, well, risk to human health and the environment, like the name suggests. Eventually, that'll, that'll lead in the next couple of years, we hope, to something called the feasibility study, where the EPA and the responsible parties will say, okay, here's what we know. Do we need to do a cleanup? If so, where do we need to do it and how would we do it? So that's the EPA's role. The Department of Environmental Quality is a partner agency and help lead that. They're the kind of second in command, if you will, after the EPA. So they're all working together on this study. And then related to that then are what are known as the trustees. And that is the state of Montana, which um, I guess is directly represented by the Natural Resource Damage Program. It's part of the Montana Department of Justice. And the other major trustee that we work with a lot is the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribe, and so essentially those are the the organizations that hold the natural resource out there in trust. So in some sense, you know, all the people of the United States and of Montana have a stake in the water, in the groundwater, in the land that are impacted by Smurfit, but we can't all show up at the meetings with the lawyers. And so the Natural Resource Damage Program has people who do that, and they. Advocate on behalf of the state and the people of Montana for that resource. Representatives from the Salish and Kootenai Tribe do the same. It's part of their, you know, the, the um, land and waters that they have treaty rights for. They have fishing rights to the Clark Fork. They're very interested in this fish consumption advisory because right now it's essentially denying them those historic fishing rights to the river. And so they're at the table as the trustee. And then David can correct me, but if I'm wrong here, but. There are a number of other state organizations, especially FWP, who are assisting the Natural Resource Damage Program from the state side of things because they bring the fisheries expertise, the wildlife expertise to the table to help their colleagues at the Natural Resource Damage Program. So at a kind of agency level, there's that going on. And then there's also the community advisory group, which is a bunch of citizens, agency folks like David, and NGO folks like me who come together once a month, it's the first Thursday of every month. We just had one last night. To meet and talk about the site, the EPA often comes to those meetings, as does the DEQ. We have presentations and conversations about the site. It's a chance for everybody to ask questions, get updates. And, you know, you asked about where we all, where all, where all this comes together. It's mostly at those community advisory group or CAG meetings where that happens. Um, And, you know, I think that it's a pretty effective group, really. Um, EPA and comes very regularly. They're pretty open. They're um, they ask a lot of questions. They give a lot of good presentations. We're actually very happy about that process. Part of the process, the communication, I think, is really, really good. And you know, the the work that the CAG and other groups like mine and FWP have done to ask and clamor for more collaboration and more participation from the EPA has worked. They're they're doing a nice job on their communication. We have bigger concerns about what it is they are communicating, the studies that inform that communication, the pace that it's happening. But you know we're getting pretty good uh, responsiveness and cooperation from the EPA at that at those CAG meetings, um, and um, that I would say is you know is where it really does come together where there's sort of this community of people, if you will, getting together at least on one a monthly basis, once a month to talk about it. And then the EPA also coordinates a quarterly update meeting to a kind of a broader agency or a broader audience of, uh, of partners. And, and some of those the PRP show up to or their representatives, kind of a, a more diverse stakeholder group, uh, state and nationwide, that attends those.
0: If people want to get involved in the, in the, uh, in the CAG, how would, they, how would they do that?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great way for people who are interested in this project to both become more informed and also to kind of help make a difference if they see it the way we do and want to clamor for more action and more thorough um, studies. The CAG meetings are, as I said, the first Thursday of every month from 6 to 730 Um Right now, they're being held by Zoom, so they're super easy to attend. Um, When we go back, hopefully soon, to a post-COVID existence, whatever that looks like, we'll start having them again in person, and they're held in Frenchtown at the Frenchtown Volunteer Fire uh, Department. Um, You can find out more about that by just Googling Frenchtown Community Advisory Group, or you can go to the Clark Fork Coalition's website or uh, shoot me an email at john at clarkfork dot com rather, and I'd uh, be happy to point you in the right direction. But we'd uh, love greater participation from your listeners.
0: Cool. Yeah, maybe we can include those links too in our uh, description today. Yeah. Um, what haven't I asked about? Yeah, the, yeah, the c- the, yeah, good question. Yeah, a
1: couple of things. Um, when <laughs>
0: anybody that lives in Azula during forest fire season understands that uh, you know, the things settle in this valley and, mm-hmm. uh, in a real way.
2: You know, if I could, you know, following up on David's points about what's going on upstream of Missoula and the successes we've seen up there, you know, he's absolutely right. We've made tremendous progress from Butte and the remediation and restoration going on there to the cleanup of the upper Clark Fork through the Deer Lodge Valley down to Milltown, the removal of the dam, the removal of all the waste that were behind the dam, the new confluence restored between the Blackfoot and the Clark Fork rivers a recreation renaissance in in downtown Missoula. You know, if you talk to people even in their forties who grew up in Missoula, you know, the idea of tubing the Clark Fork river back when they were kids, it's just was unthinkable. And now, you know, there's a group called the three rivers collaborative that's formed. And David and I both have participated in that to really deal with managing the recreation economy and the boom we've seen. And how do we move people in and out of the river? And uh, how do we provide enough access and, There's a um, city-supported project going on right now, the Clark Fork Restoration and Access Project through downtown Missoula to try to provide the infrastructure and uh, prevent damage to the river from people just kind of loving it to death. We're trying to avoid that scenario. It's a great problem to have after so many years of the Clark Fork being um, degraded. But it really points downstream to say, like, all right, Here's the downstream bookend on this whole right. mess of the Clark Fork. We're not fork. done yet. We are not yeah. done yet. And, you know, to your listeners who are out there, like, don't give up. None of it was easy elsewhere in the watershed either. You know, you're going to think, well, it's been a, a decade since the mill shut down and we don't really know that much more than we did when we started. Or we don't have a plan for cleaning it and it's hard and seems endless. Well, that was the same story at every one of those other sites. You know, the Milltown Dam, if you told people 20 years ago, we're going to take out Milltown Dam and remove all that sediment and restore the confluence of the Blackfoot and Clark Fork, they'd have laughed you out of the room. And it took people being engaged, not taking no for an answer, and then a very well-timed ice jam that almost took out the dam for people to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe we do need to do this. And, you know, over time, it actually happened. And the same is true in Butte and the Upper Clark Fork. It took decades of people coming to the table, going to the meetings, fighting and not taking no for an answer to finally get hundreds of millions of dollars to restore that river up there and holding the people who made the mess accountable for paying for it. It is going to take the same at Smurfit, unfortunately. We're trying to do what we can, not to let it take quite that long. But it's a process. It's going to be a slog, and we need to keep fighting. So, to your listeners out there, I would say, don't give up. There's reason for optimism. We need your help, and we can't take no for an answer down here it's Smurfit it's either. We've got to complete the job of restoring and cleaning up the Clark Fork River, and we are seeing progress. You know, the the, the the podcast like this just informing people was bringing more people to the team, and having them reach out to EPA. EPA is hearing that, and they're coming back with, you know, better presentations, more data, better communication. And we're able to take, you know, the resources we're getting through people's memberships in the Clark for Coalition and, and helping us out to do things like hire independent third-party consultants. Um, we've been saying, no, 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 this isn't good enough at Smurfit for so long that, you know, recently we started to ask ourselves, well, my God, is it just us? Have we you know, is it some sort of Smurfit derangement syndrome we have here at the Clark Ford Coalition? Is it time to step back and, you know, and take stock? And we thought, you know what? Yeah, let's just do that. So we we hired a company called Apt, ABT, the nationally recognized experts in super fun investigations. And we said, hey, would you Bring some peer review to the table, right? It's sort of the foundation of good science, independent third-party peer review. Would you provide that to where we are so far in the process, and specifically to the human health and the ecological risk assessment models? Hire them to do that in partnership with Missoula County, and I'm happy to report they said, you know what, Clark Fork Coalition, it's not just you. This really doesn't quite pass the laugh test on what it would take to do a comprehensive and thorough investigation at Smurfit. And that's what we really need. And that's what we need help from listeners, people, you know, our membership, people who listen to this podcast, helping us to achieve because we need an investigation that will pass that laugh test, that will. You know, even if the con- the third-party reviewers don't say, well, this is exactly how we would have done it, if they can say, well, reasonable people might disagree, but, you know, this was a pretty reasonable attempt. We can accept the answers here. And if the answers are, well, you know what? You were wrong, Clark Forn Coalition. Smurf, it's not a problem. Well, that might be the best answer we can get. I'm not optimistic that's the one we would get, but fine, They'll let the chips fall where they may, but we need that kind of credibility in the science behind this, and we're just not getting it yet, but it's we're getting there, we're making progress, and I think we will get there, and I think eventually we'll see that Smurfit becomes the next Milltown, the next Upper Clark Fork. We'll have that success, we'll get the information we need, and we'll see a, re- a reasonable remediation and restoration of that site, some redevelopment down the line, and turning it back into an asset for the community. In the meantime, though, You know, there are a number of really multi-billion dollar corporations that profited for almost 60 years out there. The bill is due. They need to step up and do the right thing for the people of Montana, for the people of Frenchtown. You know, time and time again in our history, we've seen the big corporations come, extract what they need and leave us holding the bag and the mess. Never again. And we're not going to let that happen to Smurfit. So I say to people who are listening to the podcast, thank you for your help. Maintain the optimistic spirit. Keep helping. Keep fighting, and we'll get there.
0: I love it, John. That is a excellent exclamation point on <laughs> on, on this on this episode, um, David. For folks that have more questions, that want to learn more, and, and get in touch with uh, FWP, or you know, want to want to help your efforts, uh, how how can they get in touch with you? Where can they find more information about the work you're doing?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Actually, we're not really doing any work. <laughs> that's kind of the part of the problem. <laughs> um, you know, people can, uh, um, well, people can always find out information on the Clark Fork or any other water body in Montana by going to Google fish MT. And that's our, um, that's our publicly accessible, you know, it's our, it's our web app for all of our fisheries information. Um, you can find, you know, up to date fish consumption advisories on any water body. You can find, um, Uh, All, you know, all of our data is public and we share it and um, you can you can go there first and contact me. Um, Cool. Fish MT will put your contact info in the
0: description. And yeah, that's excellent. John, same question your way. Folks have more questions, want to get involved. I know we talked about the the CAG out in Frenchtown, Um, talked about writing some letters to the EPA. We've got uh, we've got a, a site there that we can direct people to. But any anywhere else you'd point them?
2: Yeah, um, the first place I would point them is to the Clark Four Coalition's website. If you just Google Clark Four Coalition Smurfit, you'll be taken to our Smurfit webpage. Uh, lots of good information on there. You can find a lot of the major uh, project documents or links to them, to comments we have submitted to the third party review. I mentioned that report is on there. To newspaper and news articles and stories about Smurfits um, and. Um, a fact sheet on just kind of the basics. It's just a good place, I think, to start. If I do say so myself, as the Clark Fork collision, but um, it's definitely a priority for us, so we maintain that um, very up in a very up to date fashion. And then the other place is the community advisory group maintains a website. There's lots of good information on there as well. And then the EPA has a website about the site. Um, all of the major project documents are on there. Um, you can find out uh, just about anything you want to know. Big studies down to, like right now, they're doing um, berm inspections out there. There's a four-mile berm that protects the site from the Clark Fork River. Some concerns about the impacts of, you know, high water on that. So depending on, on the flows in the Clark Fork, EPA is out there on a monthly, weekly, or even daily basis, checking that out. They post those reports there in the spring if people are concerned about what high water might be doing out there. It's a great place to look, to.
0: Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. This has been really informative. Excellent info for folks to continue to research and mostly be aware, be aware of, and uh, dig in and don't eat the fish for now, but get involved in this cleanup effort. So thank you very much.
2: Yeah, thank you, Kyle. It's been our pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to Toxic: The Mess at Smurfit Stone. This podcast is produced for the Clark Fork Coalition by Pintler Group Digital Marketing Services, right here in Missoula, Montana. For more information visit clarkfork.org.